0: Micah chapter 6, as we have gone through the Minor Prophets and as we have gone through Micah, we have seen God's warning to His people, particularly in Micah. We know that Samaria, the northern kingdom of Israel, is beyond repair. Not that God can't or wouldn't forgive them, but they are so entrenched in their rebellion and in their idolatry that they will not turn. And in the prophet's lifetime, in Micah's lifetime, Assyria will come in and wipe out the northern kingdom. But Judah has the opportunity to see what has happened and to change. And in one of the encouraging portions of history that we see uh, as it relates to God's people, we know that Judah does turn, that under King Hezekiah, they do turn. They make drastic changes as a people and God spares them for over a hundred years before they too fall back into idolatry and sin. And we know that they'll fall to Babylon. Uh, See, there's a time coming when God will deal fully with the sins of his people. He has to. It's an aspect of his faithful covenant-keeping love toward them. But we also know, and especially as we saw in Micah chapter 5 last week, that judgment isn't the final word. As we celebrated Christmas in July, all of this looks forward to a time when the king is coming again. When that king, who in prophetic tension will both be from Yahweh and will be equal with Yahweh himself, will righteously rule over his people. He will gather what He scattered, he will restore what he has broken down, and he will come from Bethlehem but he will have no beginning. And we saw that in one of the most beautiful, clear passages of Scripture that Jesus Christ and Christ alone fulfills what the prophets anticipated. And now as we move into Micah chapter 6, really what we're looking at is the opening of the closing arguments. This is the last word. Uh, This is God's indictment of his people and we'll finish last week, or next week in Micah chapter 7, God's promise of restoration. And uh, if you haven't read Micah 6 in a while, or maybe ever, it's both a warning and a plea. Even as God makes his final case against his people, there's this pleading tone with them to come back to him. So if you're not there already, find your way to Micah chapter 6. I'm going to read the first five verses to set the stage for where we're going today. Micah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, this is what God's word says. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Baor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, so that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before your word, we pray what we always do. Lord, that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. And Lord, we don't pray that simply because it's a habit, but God, we recognize that on our own, in our own strength, and our own wisdom, we are as blind, as desperate, and as foolish as Israel is. That we bring nothing to the table except darkness and the need for understanding. And so, Lord, we ask that you would open our blind eyes that you would soften our hardened hearts, that you would unstop our deaf ears so that we might see and behold and marvel at the truth that you've given to us in your word. And Lord, we would ask for the further grace to live in light of those things, that through the power of your spirit, because of the clarity of your word, you would help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. God, help us not to be merely hearers, but to be doers of the word. God, we need your help. For all of those things. And so we come before you and we ask in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. While we were at camp, what you didn't see in that video was the sermon series that carried through. And the speaker, he uh, opened up the book of Daniel, in particular the first six chapters, to talk about how Daniel lived faithfully as an exile and how we too are, in many senses, exiles in the culture that we live in. Uh, We are temporary residence of an unfamiliar, unfriendly, uncompromising, uncomfortable place. Now the way he opened that sermon series up in Daniel chapter 1 was by talking about the conflict that was taking place at that time between Judah and Babylon. And he said that God, as he is sitting in heaven, sees and knows both sides and that God is not silent but that God picks a winner and it's not who we might expect because God chooses Babylon rather than his covenant people. And he made a a powerful point. He went to Psalm 115 verse 3 and he said this all goes back to the idea that our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. That we can't sit there and say, God, you made the wrong choice. That God in his absolute sovereignty is absolutely sovereign over every atom in the universe, over international politics, and over individual lives. That God stands completely without peer, without equal, completely sovereign, and can do whatever he pleases. He has the authority, the right, the ability to govern the affairs of men, the affairs of nations, and the affairs of his creation. But what we have to understand is that God does not simply stand in heaven and roll the dice and wherever things come down, that is his choice. God has also told his people how he would act. You see, hundreds of years before that conflict between Judah and Babylon, hundreds of years before Micah prophesied, hundreds of years before any king of Israel or Judah sat on the throne, God told His people in Leviticus exactly what they could expect. If they were faithful to their portion of the covenant, If they would obey the Lord and keep his commandments, then God would richly bless them. Beyond measure, beyond imagine, God would make that tiny nation prosperous and secure. But if they were disobedient, they would know famine and need and want and ultimately exile. You see, as God determines throughout human history, God also acts in a way that is absolutely consistent with his character. The overall title for our journey through Micah has been From Guilt to Glory, because Micah continually uses this courtroom-type language to talk about how God is moving in a way that is just. It is not random. It is not capricious. It is not simply unbridled and uncontrolled wrath. It is right and righteous justice as God intervenes and even disciplines his people. And now as we come to Micah chapter 6, as I said, he, he brings us back to that courtroom scene, back to that language. He's calling for witnesses. He's giving indictments. And these are the closing arguments that God is going to make. And first of all, what we're going to see is that as God makes his closing argument, he's going to remind the people of what has been done. And then after that, we're going to look at the response, and the people are going to ask what should be done, and then we're going to close with what actually will be done and what's going to happen. But first, uh, what has been done? And chapter 6 opens with the very particular call. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth for the lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with israel no mistake the courtroom language the idea of indictments of witnesses and god calls the people to court he calls them to stand before the lord their accuser and it's interesting he calls the mountains and even the foundations of the earth as witnesses Uh, this isn't the only place it's pretty frequent that the prophets use the idea of calling creation itself to witness the acts and the results of god's responses here and why the mountains? Why the foundations of the earth? Well, because they've got the history to see. A people with a very limited and finite time frame might forget. We have 70 or 80 years. Maybe we have a generation or two that we can withdraw, that we can draw information from. But God is calling on the mountains and the foundations of the earth themselves to witness what is going on because they have seen his actions with his people from the beginning. And so they stand as witness to the history of God as he interacts with his people because he opens his argument not only with an indictment, but with a very particular question. In the case of Israel and Judah versus Yahweh, here's the question. What does the record show as it concerns God's faithfulness? O oh my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. Here's God's question. Israel, Why? Judah, why? What is it that I have done to you that has caused this response? Because surely there has to be something, right? For a people to turn this drastically away from their God, for a people to reject the one who called them, for a people to completely pursue all the idols and the idolatry and the spiritual adultery and fornication and all the things of the nations around them, surely that would only happen because Yahweh has somehow proven unfaithful they must have an excuse, right? And so God says, what have I done? If this is where you are, if this is how far you've come, then Israel, Judah, show me where my fault was. And then he calls them back into their history. What have I done? Verse 4, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Israel, look back to the very beginning as a nation and see that I was the one that formed you. See, way back in Genesis 46, less than 70 members of Jacob's family go down into Egypt to escape famine in the land of Canaan. 400 years later, they come out as a nation. Almost in the womb of slavery, God forms and builds his nation, and he draws them out. And we all know the stories. Even if we haven't read the biblical account, we've seen the various movies, flawed as they are prince of egypt charlton heston all those great things but we know that god he doesn't just make a way out he redeems his people out of slavery in egypt through demonstration after demonstration of his sovereign powerful mighty hand he shames pharaoh he makes nothing the gods of egypt and he calls his people out of slavery is that not enough What else? I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. He didn't just send them out wandering and alone. He sent representatives to lead his people. Miriam called the prophetess. Aaron, who would speak for Moses, who would begin that Aaronic priesthood, that line of people who would minister, who would be the go-betweens, from a holy God to a sinful people. Moses, who would mediate the law to the people, who would stand over them and lead them and represent them even before Yahweh my people, not only did I redeem you, but I provided for you in terms of who would lead you. Was that not enough? Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And we say, yeah, I remember that. But you know, just in case my neighbor or my spouse doesn't, maybe you should go over that so that they get it. I remember, but they might not. Okay, no problem, we can do that. Turn with me back to the book of Numbers chapter 22. Numbers, we skipped that in our reading. That's the place where we slow down in the annual Bible plan. At this point in the book of Numbers, God has redeemed his people out of slavery, and the children of Israel are moving toward the promised land, and it is not less than 70. It is a nation that more than likely numbers in the millions of people moving into Canaan. And Moab sees this great people covering the plains, and the people of Moab are rightly afraid. And the king of Moab at that time is a man named Balak, and he has a brilliant idea. Numbers 22, beginning right about the middle of verse 4. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Amwal, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth. They're dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I'll be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. Here is Balak's brilliant idea. will call the seer Balaam. He will curse the people, and then I will be able to defeat them. But God shows up, appears to Balaam, and says, don't curse the people because they're blessed. In fact, don't go up at all. Later on, he gives permission. There is a fascinating encounter between an unseen angel of the Lord, the prophet, and a talking donkey, which we do not have time to get into today. But again, don't tell me that Numbers is boring if you have not read these things. Numbers is fascinating. We come to Numbers chapter 23, and Balak the king takes Balaam up onto a hill from where he can see just a portion of the people. And he says, go ahead, curse him, let him have it. And Balaam opens his mouth, and instead of a curse, out comes a blessing on Israel. Balak is furious. He says, that is not what I hired you to do. Let's try again. He brings him to another place, and he says, all right, now you can see another piece of him. Go ahead, curse these people. And I want you to look with me in Numbers 23, beginning halfway, all right, well, let's begin at verse 18. This is what Balaam said in his second oracle. And Balaam took up his discourse and said, rise, Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not man that he should lie. Or a son of man that he should change his mind? Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless. He is blessed and I cannot revoke it. Has he not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel? Yahweh their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of the wild ox. There is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel, Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, What has God wrought? Behold, a people. As a lioness it rises up, and as a lion it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. And Balak says to Balaam, Stop! That's not what I wanted you to do. Don't say anything. If you can't say something mean, don't say anything at all. And then he gives him one more chance. And Balaam goes, and he overlooks the whole people. And as you can probably guess, once again he blesses them instead of cursing them. And Balak says enough just go home i have no use for you and Balaam says fine i'll go home but by the way here's a parting word there's going to come one who will destroy you and your people and will exalt this people israel forever and you say i knew that thanks for the refresher back to micah 6 why does god bring that up because even as the people are moving into the land before they even have a land before they even realize that there is a threat God is protecting His people. Before they know that one has hired someone to curse them, God is ensuring that His covenant blessings are going to fall on them. God has proven faithful from the beginning. And back in Micah 6, He goes on. The last half of verse 5. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord, and you say, once again, I know exactly what you're talking about, but just in case everyone else doesn't, why don't you remind us, no problem. You move on from that chapter in Numbers, and you come to Joshua chapter 3 and 4, and the people have moved through the foreign lands, and they have come right to the bank of the Jordan River, and they are encamped at a place called Shittim on the east side of the Jordan. Jordan. And between the people and the promised land is a river at flood stage. And if you've ever tried to get your kid across a puddle, you know how difficult that is. Now imagine a million people trying to cross a river at its flood stage. And you know that this is not good. So what does God do? Get the engineers to work and stop the river? No. The priests move into the river with the ark and as soon as their ankles touch the water, the water stops and backs itself up. The people cross on dry ground. They bring stones out of the river as a memorial and on the other side of the river, the people come out of the Jordan and they camp at a place called Gilgal. And from there, they move from Jericho to Ai and into the promised land. What God is doing right there is he is giving the cities that bracket the people's movement from wanderers to settlers in the promised land. What's God doing? What's He saying? All right, Israel, what have I done? What have I done to cause you to hate me, to spurn me, to turn from me? Israel, look back at your history but we don't even get into them in the nation before you see God's hand over and over and over again, sustaining them, blessing them, protecting them, providing for them in every way imaginable. Even when the people are faithless, grumbling, and complaining, God is faithful and perfect to every word. Israel, your history is a testimony to my perfect faithfulness. So why? Why? why do you do what you do? And with that question ringing in the background, we go from what has been done to what must be done. Because when you come face to face with the holiness and the perfection of God, it demands a response. In fact, the next logical question, when you do realize, well, I don't have a case against God is, then what should I do now? Or maybe if you read this in the tone of a certain age bracket, well, what do you want me to do about it? Essentially, that's what Israel says. What should we do? Because look at the people's question. Look at what the people ask. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Fine. God, you have done all this. What do you want? How is it then that I come back into relationship with you? And I love this portion of Scripture because Israel answers in the way that all of humanity, all of fallen humanity naturally answers. You know what they say? God, what do I have to do to bridge this gap? fine, I recognize you're there and I'm here. You're good and I'm bad. You're holy and I'm not. So what do I have to do to make up the steps to get it to where you and I are good again? Do You see the problem with that? What do I have to do? And look at what Israel says. Shall I come before you with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Lord, do you want the animal in the prime of its life? Do you want the offering that's a year old? And we read that and we say, well, yeah, Why not? I mean, that's kind of a good thing, right? I remember somewhere, Leviticus, that other part that I really started reading quickly through in my Bible yearly reading plan, I remember something about sacrifice as a year old. See, there's nothing wrong with the sacrificial system. Sin has to be dealt with. God said that he would dwell among his covenant people. But there's a problem with that. Because a holy God can't dwell among sinful people. And so God in his grace and his love and his mercy gives us the book of Leviticus. By the way, that's what Leviticus is. It's not a gross, bloody, boring book with blood and sacrifice and rules. Leviticus says this is how a holy God lives among a sinful people. Leviticus says this is how your sins can be covered by something standing in your place. You say, that sounds a lot like What jesus did yes leviticus absolutely points you to christ in fact you don't understand the high priestly atoning work of christ without the book of leviticus it's another sermon but what's the problem with sacrifice for sacrifice sake on its own sacrifice is just an act the sacrificial system, rightly practiced, always demanded a heart that recognized God's holiness, recognized man's sin and failure, and came and brought those sacrifices in humble repentance. The lack of genuine repentance means the sacrifice is meaningless, and they go on. All right, Lord, if you won't accept the first, uh, if you won't accept the lamb a year old, if you won't accept quality, how about quantity? Verse 7, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Lord, uh, you don't want the best. Do you want all of it? What if I just bring you all the lambs? What if I bring you so much oil that it's like it's coming in rivers? And what's the anticipated answer? No. Keep your rivers of blood. Keep your rivers of oil. Because on its own, that's not enough to please the Lord. And they move on. Well, what if we sacrifice the most precious thing that could be imagined? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? You hear that idea of sacrificing the firstborn. Maybe your mind goes back to Genesis when Abraham is called to sacrifice Isaac, his son, his only son, the son that he loves. And how God stays his hand and rescues Isaac. And Abraham's faith is tested and confirmed because Abraham believed that even if he killed Isaac, arranged his body and the fire completely consumed him that God was powerful enough to raise him up from the dead. We move through Israel's history and tragically we know that they would sacrifice their children certainly not to Yahweh but to the pagan idols and the gods of the nations around them. And now the people wonder if God will be satisfied if they give up their own children and the answer is still no. Why? God doesn't want necessarily the right sacrifice god doesn't want more sacrifice god doesn't want the most precious because of what david says in psalm 51 psalm 51 verse 16 for you will not delight in sacrifice or i would give it you'll not be pleased with the burnt offering but the sacrifices of god are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart O god you will not despise And we saw it in the book of Amos, and we saw it when we referenced the book of Isaiah, that at this point, Israel can do all the things, but the Lord hates, the Lord despises their sacrifices. He hates their feasts and their festivals. Their songs are like noisy, clanging gongs to his ears, because all they're doing is bringing the stuff. All they're doing is trying to clean themselves up so that they can take the next step toward God, rather than doing the only thing that actually brings restoration, and that is humbly confessing their sin and recognizing that there's nothing they can do to breach that that they are wholly and completely dependent on god to do what they could not now that repentance absolutely leads to action and we'll see that in a moment but understand this sacrifice however you define it however you bring it whatever it costs you sacrifice for the sake of sacrifice and merely appeasing an angry god will always fall short of genuine worship It is eternally worthless without a heart of repentance behind it. So what does the Lord require? If God doesn't want the best, if God doesn't want the most, if God doesn't want the most precious thing, then what does he want? And the answer, the Lord's response here, is one of the most familiar verses in the whole book, although most of us know it. We might not know where it comes from. Micah 6, 8. He's told you, O man what is good? That strikes me. You're asking all these questions. What do you want? What do you want? God, what do you want? If we're so bad, what is it that you want? And the answer is you already know. You don't need a new word. You don't need some new revelation. You don't need some brand new understanding for what God expects of you. He has told you, oh man, what is good. He has told you what the Lord requires of you. These people in particular had this embedded in the law from long, long before Micah ever opened his mouth. He's told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? You want to satisfy the wrath of God? You want to escape His righteous judgment? You want to return to a place of fellowship and blessing? Then do justice. How have we seen these people characterized? Not only in Micah, but in all the minor prophets unjust, wicked, selfish, eager to take advantage of people for their own gain. They need to kill that, they need to put it aside, and they need to put on justice, righteousness. Not only that, they need to love kindness. These people were violent, wicked, cruel to each other. They are pictured as preying on the weak, devouring the poor. They need to put that aside and put on love and kindness. It's that word chesed steadfast love so often the nasb translates it as loving kindness it's that steadfast constant covenant keeping love in other words that god that love that love that god has demonstrated and poured out to them they need now to take on and put on themselves and finally they need to walk humbly with your god the pride and the arrogance of these people continues to drive them further and further away they worship the way that they want. They build walls to make themselves feel secure. Feel secure and they make alliances with all the nations. And what they need is humility. And it's important to see that verse 8 isn't a list of actions that will make them pleasing to God. It's not like the sacrifices of verse 6 and 7 are bad. Don't do those things. And instead, verse 8, these are the things that you need to do. It's the fact that verse 8 is impossible without a radical heart change but that that heart change will be demonstrated by these things. Because you can't demonstrate justice unless you understand and have responded to the righteous justice of God. You can't love kindness. You can't love chesed unless you've understood and experienced that steadfast loving kindness of God in your own life. You can't walk humbly with God and still live in rebellion toward him. And I think a great New Testament parallel to that is where we read out of James earlier. James does not contrast Paul where Paul says you're justified by faith and James says you're justified by works. James simply, simply says, if your faith is genuine, you'll see it. That your faith without works is dead. Show me your faith and I'll show you how it ought to live itself out. See, the way of salvation the way of blessing for israel and every person since then it's the same god is not interested in your external checklist of things that make you look better not even those moral things not even those things where you could find a biblical command and say that you were obedient salvation restoration to god begins with repentance that says i am lost ruined and helpless in desperate need of the salvation that only God could provide, in desperate need of the covering that only God could provide. And when we come to that place, then we are able to do these things. Who better to love justice than those who have seen the perfect righteous justice of God? Who better to love tender mercy and kindness than those whom God has poured out His tender mercy and kindness on? Who better to walk in humility than those who understand the weight that God has removed from them, not because they're good enough, smart enough, strong enough, important enough, but because God in his majestic tender mercy has saved them. So we've seen God lay his case before his people. He's pointed them back to his perfect faithfulness. He's called them to respond to something more than externals. So what will be done? We've seen what has been done. We see what must be done. But what is going to happen? And sadly, we know that we don't see the lasting change. The nation will change. They'll be spared for a time. But we know that eventually Judah, like Israel, falls right back into their sinful patterns. The first thing we see is that the people are going to continue in their rebellion. They're going to continue in their prideful rejection of the only good, right, and wise thing. Verse 9 the voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it's sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear the, of the rod and of him who appointed it. See, the Lord is giving this warning, and it's wise to fear his name. You've got to understand the natural response of fallen man, it's not only to invent our own God, it's to tame him. See, we want a God who's holy, but but not too holy. We want a God that's just, but not too just. We want a God that's powerful, uh, but not too powerful. A God who is invested and interested in my life, but not too invested and interested in my life. So we make a God who is certainly other than God and almost definitely less than God. No, understanding God for who he is brings a righteous and holy fear an awe and a reverence for who he is and what he has done and what he is able to do. And not only that, he says, hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. The idea that they are supposed to recognize the discipline of God and be thankful for it, if we could say that. The fact that God is not going to do what he is going to do to Israel and Judah because he hates them, but because he loves them not because he has forgotten them, but because he has remembered them and because he is always faithful to his covenant promises. For God to act as a loving father to his people will mean that he will discipline them as his children. Parents discipline their children. Why? You ever wonder that? Kids wonder that all the time. Uh, They think it's because we enjoy making their lives difficult. That's not the reason. Why do parents discipline their children? even in ways that are uncomfortable and even ways that are painful. Why do parents discipline their children? Because we want to spare them from the torment that comes from rejection and move them to the blessing that's found in obedience. God is no different. It would not be loving for God to allow His people to continue on in their own way in the same way that it is not loving, it is not good parenting to allow a child to define their own reality, to allow a child to find and define their own path through life. It is not good parenting to make sin easy in the lives of our children. The way of the sinner is hard. Discipline drives foolishness out. And that is not a parenting maxim. That is how God deals faithfully with his people. That's the foundation for all of that. And God is going to use his rod in a painful way on his people, but it is ultimately for their good. In other words, you don't get to those redemption and restoration passages if God simply ignores his people and allows them to carry on as they want. But what's going to happen? Verse 10 There are still treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked. The scant measure is accursed. In other words, they're still going to get rich in all the wrong ways. Verse 12, the rich men are full of violence. The inhabitants speak lies. Their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. The people are still going to lie. They're going to hear the word of the Lord. They're going to hear the warning of the prophet. And they're going to continue to run toward rebellion. So God is going to outline what's coming. They're going to continue in rebellion, then God is going to tell them what the coming wrath is going to look like. He's going to make his people the ones that he stands ready and willing to forgive. He's going to make them a desolation because of their sins. They're going to eat and not be satisfied. There will be hunger within you. They're going to put away but not preserve. What you preserve, I'll give to the sword. In other words, they're going to plan and they're going to save, but it's going to come to nothing. You'll sow, but not reap. Tread olives, but not anoint yourself with oil. Tread grapes, but not drink wine. You're going to plant and prepare. You're going to cultivate and sow, but you won't reap. You're going to plant, but you won't harvest. Why? Verse 16. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, two wicked, vile kings from the history of the northern kingdom in Israel. In fact, God said that they were worse than anyone that came before them. This is a time period with Ahab and Jezebel and the rebellion and uh, the people during the time of Elijah and the, the thin, tiny margin of people that were faithful to God, just the utter wickedness and corruption. and God says, "You're just like that." And God says, "So I'm going to make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing, and you shall bear the scorn of my people." Now what he's saying is he is not going to turn them into snakes. He's giving them this graphic picture of what it's going to be like when he brings them to this place. There's going to be this kind of guttural response from people that see what God is doing. We still do this. We are coming up on football season. I know that none of you are heavily invested in that, especially on Sundays, but here goes. On Sundays, sometimes you will see the receiver catch a pass right over the middle of the field, open, exposed, And then you will see the 300-pound linebacker come out of nowhere. And he will hit him so hard that his helmet goes into the stands and his left shoe goes onto the visitor's bench. And what do we do? Ooh! You respond to it. People are going to pass by Israel. They are going to see that desolation God has caused and they're going to go, ooh. What happened? How did it come to this? See, Israel was called from the beginning as a nation to be a light to the world. Israel, that tiny, insignificant people, was supposed to shine brightly in a dark world as they lived in peace and prosperity and security. It was supposed to scream out the power, not of Israel, but of Israel's God. But if Israel refuses to do that, if they refuse to magnify His name through their faithfulness in His, then they will magnify His name in his faithfulness as he judges them. If his power cannot be demonstrated in blessing, his power will be demonstrated in his faithful justice. Either way, Israel will fulfill her covenant obligations as either a warning or a witness to the nations. And that doesn't seem like a great place to end. I mean, we know at this point, or at least we should know at this point, that that's not the final word. And like I said, closing arguments wrap up in chapter 7 with God's promise to restore what he has broken. So why do we keep going through these sections over and over, dealing with judgment and difficulty and pain to come? We had a couple good long staff meetings this week. because not only we plan for this Sunday, but as we think through kind of these broad issues and scope and uh, heart's desires for the coming year and uh, pastor nathan gave the devotional on thursday and he went here on first timothy chapter one verse five it says the goal of our instruction is to love from a pure heart from a good conscience and a sincere sincere faith the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart from a good conscience and a sincere faith and that verse has been rolling around in my mind since thursday That's the reason that I stand here. It's the reason that anybody who fills in for me stands up here. The goal of our instruction is that you would love God. Not just in general, not in some fuzzy conceptual way, but that you would love this God. The God who reveals himself in creation and the God who specifically reveals himself in his word. That you would respond to him with a good conscience. That you would respond to him with a sincere faith. And the minor prophets help us do that. They call us to love the God of justice. They call us to love the God of mercy. They call us to a genuine and sincere faith as we see sin for the horror and the vile thing that, is, that it is and we're called to put it to death in our lives. They call us to humble repentance just like they called Israel in light of the vastness of our sin and the even greater weight of God's mercy. They remind us that the mercy of God that's poured out in the past should make us marvel at his mercy that's poured out in our lives. And it should always move us toward repentance so that we can walk in a clear conscience and so that we can live in light of God's blessings and not his constant discipline. So, three things for us to think through as we go today. First of all, what's our excuse? If God were to stand before us and call us to testify, what have I done that has driven you to this? And some of us have a this. That sin that we refuse to let go of. That habit, that pattern. That lustful longing that we feel, That consistent bitterness. The anger, whatever it might be. And the difficult thing is that so often I have a ready reason for that. Well, God, I'm this way because of these things. When the answer is I have no excuse. That if God is to be believed, then he has made a way out of every temptation. That God, if he is to be believed, has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. That God, if he is to be believed has made us able to do all things and rightly understood in context, that is to live whether in plenty or need, but to live in obedience. So as often as I come to passages like this where God says, what have I done? Uh, I'm forced to stand there and say, well, you've been nothing but faithful. Forgive me for my unfaithfulness. Second thing, what's the proof? What's the proof of our religion? Are we, are we trying to structure our lives in such a way that if we check off enough boxes, uh, maybe we wind up on God's good side? Or, or are our lives simply reflections of radically changed hearts because of the impact of the gospel? If someone were to examine my life, would they see a man striving on his own strength to be good enough, whatever good enough might mean, Or they see someone who humbly realizes that they are a lost and ruined sinner but through the power and the mercy of God have been enabled to live a life that's different. I'm going to invite you and challenge you today sitting here listening online to stop flirting with God. Stop trying to come with a facade of sham religion and determine maybe even today once and for all why it is you do the things you do why i do the things that i do to understand that god does not want need or accept my externals but that the sacrifices of our god are a broken and contrite heart and that broken and contrite heart will then move to the place of obedience and a desire wholly for god and the things that are his and finally the question what could we give What do you want, God? Do you want the best? It's not best enough. Do you want the most? It's not most enough. Do you want the most precious? It's not precious enough. And if that were the end of it, what a desolate, disappointing, depressing gospel we would preach. But what a joy that says, even if I were to give my firstborn, God would not be satisfied. She's thankful because she's sitting here today. And yet for God so loved the world that he gave what? Oh. So God does give the Son. The most precious. The most perfect. In a sacrifice that's better than the blood of bulls and goats, better than tens of thousands of rivers of blood that could cover sin, but only for a time, he is given what we could not. If you have never come to grips with the reality of the gospel, that is the heart of it, understand that God did what you could not and what you would not. That God gave his only son so that ruined sinners might be restored to right relationship with him. Let's pray. Lord, you are good. You are patient. You are kind with us. Lord, help us To see our sin for what it is. To respond in humble obedience. Repentance. So that we might know the joy of restoration. And Lord, help us to be a people that preach that gospel of restoration. Whether the world wants to hear, doesn't want to hear, is receptive or is hostile. Lord, help us to be faithful. And that's all that you've called us to. And we know, Lord, that in your faithfulness, you will call men and women to yourself. You've promised that. You'll build your church. So Lord, help us to believe your promises, to look back on our own history and see nothing but faithfulness on your part, and then to move forward in joyful obedience and confidence that you will continue to do what your sovereign good will determines. Lord, we worship you for you are worthy to be praised. Amen.